Good. I would like to request your kindly attention for some thoughts. Um, this is the last evening. If uh, all went well, this would be the moment to say edifying words, how to integrate practice into daily life. Uh, maybe draw a summary of things mentioned. Um, encourage, exhort, gently break it to you that things will change as of tomorrow. But I w will not fulfill these expectations tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to reflect with you um, a little bit how we think about ourselves, about practice, about progress, and um, touch on a few sort of loose bits. Um, some of this is unfermented, and some of this has to do with living in a time when we are metabolizing a teaching that comes from another time, another culture. And there are some strange and wonderful things happening in that process of metabolizing an ancient wisdom teaching. Uh, one of my intellectual heroes, Gregory Bateson, uh, says very tersely, I believe it's in Steps Towards an Ecology of Mind, that the major problems in the world are the result of the difference between how nature works and the way people think. That's simple enough, isn't it? Major problems in the world as the result of the difference between how nature works and how people think. There's a lot to be said from a Buddhist point of view about this. Uh, the conceptualization of an essentially dynamic reality into an essentially static world of reified concepts uh, brings a lot of pain if the world then doesn't behave like my concepts I have made of this world. I think this is an interesting little motto. Um, when we speak about Buddhist teachings these days, we inevitably speak about Buddhist teachings if we are serious about Buddhist teachings, not as historical ideas, but if we speak about Buddhist teachings as something to practice, as something to cultivate, as something to apply to our mental life, then we speak about these teachings in psychological terms. I do, not because I like. Uh, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Uh, sometimes, um, actually, I would like to avoid the netherworlds of psychology. But... It so happens that about 80 years ago, most of the Western world, under the impact of psychology and particularly psychoanalysis, started to think about its interior life in terms of psychology. That wasn't the case, I don't know exactly where the boundary is in English, but in my uh, the language I'm most familiar with in German, that was somewhere in the 20s of last century that people started to refer to their interior worlds in terms of psycholog psychological term. Or psychologists will probably claim in popularized psychological terms. Obviously not accurate, proper, scientific psychological terms. But So, this is not something I have a choice about. 
I just happen to be part of my time. I happen to be conditioned. I happen to have been taught. And I happen to uh, be learning how to self-reflect. And this, in turn, takes place in psychological terms, whether I like it or not. And so it doesn't surprise that Buddhism and psychology have had a lively exchange. Sometimes that exchange was a bit lonely. Um, occasionally, Buddhists have tried to speak to psychologists and have nobody was home. Um, sometimes, um, Indologists have tried speaking with psychologists and have found equally nobody home. But in the recent, say, the last 50 years, something has happened and people are starting to talk with each other. So, since psychology and psychological terms are what we refer to our interior lives, I believe Jane Austen didn't do that, you know, nor did Goethe. Um, but now, when we speak about our inner lives, then we use words like emotion, we use words like repression, we use words like neurosis, we use words like obsession. Yeah. All these things are psychological terms, even though we may not have clean and neat and scientific definitions for this, we, this is how we think about ourselves. So, I think it's good to have a look at how Buddhist teaching thinks and talks and uses language. One of the things we can maybe say is that the East and the West have different takes. Western civilizations, right from the Greeks onward, and maybe even earlier, although I wouldn't put my hand in the fire for this, um, have a strong notion of the autonomous subject. We're very, very interested, our psychology, our philosophy is interested in the individuum. Yeah. The individual, as it lives, as it makes choices, as it is part of a larger um, fold. In some way, and this is maybe simplified, you could say that the East in some way has focused on a, a vertical, a timeless dimension. And the West has focused on a horizontal dimension, on an individual's life as it unfolds in time. Our heroes are people who have made things in their life, within a lifespan, who have realized things, who have moved things, who have done things in their life. So, and this is really a difference. That vertical dimension is concerned with the timeless. It is concerned with an awareness for the experiencing subject, yeah? or for the experiencer itself. The Western, the horizontal axis, seems to be largely preoccupied with the content of that experiencer's world yeah, as it unfolds. So, we want to make a distinction. Uh, then, if we practice Buddhist meditation, then we are basically, time and again, called to shift from our focus of awareness on the content of our experience to the actual process of becoming an experiencing subject. Yeah? We're continually 
encouraged to shift from content to the process of how that experiencing subject constellates itself. How I arrive from something happening in my senses to there being somebody who has this experience. That's a major shift, but that's not easy. If we look at how Buddhist teaching works, then uh, like we, uh, in a particular time here, cultures, history of mind, embedded in many things that have nothing to do with Buddhism, so Buddhism had to use metaphors, imagery that it found. And it's interesting to see what the Buddha does as a religious teacher, how he uses the language, how he uses idioms, how he uses metaphors, um, to convey a message, a message in which we, in certain areas, radically departs from what his culture, and particularly his religious environment, holds to be true, or holds to be important, or holds to be for fact. Let me remind you of a few of those. Uh, one of those metaphors is um, a very powerful metaphor. It's about fire. Uh, the metaphor, the fire, t comes up in a number of places in Buddhist teaching. One famous place is uh, the fire worshippers. Yeah. So you have the, the Vedic image of fire as the um, symbol, the expression of God, Agni, the fire god, yeah, the deity uh, of fire. And this uh, is a primordial Vedic deity which uh, much is being said about and at the time of the Buddha, we had fire worshippers. The practice of venerating Agni had many expressions. So you have Brahminical fires and you have fire ascetics who perpetually keep the fires going as expression of their religious dedication, as the devotion. And the Buddha uses the imagery of fire but turns it on its heads. Yeah? So the, from the sacrificial fires, which are there to uh, as an act of devotion for God, Agni, in Buddhism, the fires become the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. So he takes the fire, but he turns it on its head. Yeah? The fires are now the problem. And the activity that in Vedic uh, ritualism is feeding the fires, the term is upadana, suddenly becomes the Buddhist term for grasping, for attachment, and for identification. A strange word that has the double meaning both of grasping, yeah, dana, giving, you heard something about this today, adana, taking, upadana is a reinforcement particle. Um, so taking very hard, that is what we translate as attachment or as grasping. That's one meaning. The other meaning is fuel fuel. Yeah. So that's not obvious. It's not easy to find an English or a French word for that method that does the same job of conveying both the meaning of grasping and the meaning of fueling. There are images in the suttas which tell us how these things go together. One image is the image of a burning piece of wood. If you think of a piece of wood ablaze, the flame living off the wood licking the wood, 
in fact, if you blow into that flame, it seems as if the flame is actually attaching to the wood. Yeah? It kind of bends over. You blow into it, it bends over, but it seems to cling to the wood. It seems to cling to its fuel. Yeah? So I believe the image of clinging and the image of f being fueled by finds its root in such a simple experience, an everyday experience. The flame clings to that which fuels it. You have the image of fire turning up in the word of, for the summum bonum of Buddhist teaching, Nibbana. The root there is double, one is blowing out and one is cooling down. So the blowing out part is very important. So blowing out means um, in the Vedic world that the fire that was actual, manifest, goes over into a state of latency. It disappears from the measurable, from the visible world. For us in the West, a fire that is extinguished is not just gone latent. It doesn't just become ineffable, unspeakable. It's dead. It's killed. It's done. It's done in for. It's done for. Yeah. So the image of a fire going out as an analogy for the highest good of a religion is highly uninspiring here in the West. Yeah. I don't know, maybe this is slightly unappetizing, but as you know, as young boys going out, picnicking, you know, the, generally the women were sent ahead and the boys stayed behind and peed on the fire. Yeah? <laughs> so fire gone out sometimes evokes still today in my mind, basically a dead fire, you know. <laughs> and I understand this is never really lifted off as a big sort of inspirational image for Nibbana. That some of our Sri Lankan friends who translated uh, Buddhist teachings as accurately as possible into English a hundred years ago or so uh, chose the word extinction for that process didn't really help the matter. Yeah? So <laughs> extinction as the highest goal of a religion doesn't really, I don't know what it does to your heart, but it doesn't really lift mine very much. Now, if you look at, if you try to recontextualize that image of fire in, in the, the Buddhist day, obviously it was embedded in a Vedic notion of fire, where God, Agni, this just simply moved from its manifest state into its latent state. He wasn't dead. He was just ungraspable. He was unmeasurable. He was ineffable. Yeah. So, the same imagery that speaks... For me, for death and um, dead picnic fires and, and extinction speaks probably for an Indian mind uh, two and a half millennia ago of something very, very different. And this despite accurate translation. Yeah. The words do actually mean this, but the context in which these words are held means something else. Yeah. I have great... Uh, conviction that the notion of Nibbana as a, f as a flame being blown out does not evoke the same as it does in my mind of an extinguished fire. Yeah. So you begin to understand how important 
imagery is and how important it metaphor is. So there's some, the Indian traditions have some fun ways of referring to things. Um, Indian old tradition, if they want to say something is not real or has no footing in, in, in actuality, they things like it's made out of a crow's tooth. Yeah. Or it's made out of a turtle's moustache. You can find that still in Thai language. It's still there. Yeah. Or it's made out of visanasasa, of rabbit's horn. Yeah. If you want to say something is absolute bogus, has no, no footing in reality, you just say, this is, this is made out of rabbit's horn. Yeah. <laughs> Over the course of time, the elegance of the old idioms have lost a little bit of their power. John was telling me... Uh, yesterday or two days ago, um, how one Tibetan historical teacher, just to be clear, uh, was said of the reasoning of another Tibetan's teachers, it had as much substance as a fart. You know? <laughs> I believe the, the message is the same. You know? we're, you know, we're, uh, we, can, we, can, we can ruefully note that some of the, the lightness and the good taste has gone lost in the course of the centuries, but <laughs> I guess the punchline remains the same. I'm saying something does not hold water. Yeah. I want to look at the notion that we connect with growth. Growth is an interesting metaphor. It's a powerful metaphor. Um, it has been hijacked by economists largely. Um, it used to be an agricultural metaphor. Um, things kind of are being sown, are being cultivated, are grown. Yeah? We speak a lot in this language when we speak about Buddhist teaching. The word meditation, bhavana, is exactly such an agricultural word. It means cultivation, bringing into being. But recently the word growth is no longer in the hands of agriculturalists and, and hobby gardeners. It's in the hand of economists. And economists have one thing not understood, that the agricultural notion of growth implies a phase of growing and a phase of decay. If I listen to economists, I, they don't seem to have the, this decay part uh, acknowledged. Um, in fact, some, some of their own have criticized have mounted criticism against this uh, somewhat lopsided take on growth and say, um, if, you, if you consider that you could grow things infinitely without ever going through phases of decay, you're either a madman or an economist. Yeah. <laughs> One of my teachers in Thailand really made fun of economists. He spent some time at Harvard and had some exposure to economical theories. And he, he found that uh, very remarkably unreal, you know, how economists attributed value to things. And the notion of what is real and what is um, actual and empirical in terms of Buddhist understanding and in terms of what he picked up of eco economical theory seem to be highly discrepant in his understanding. So me, I'm interested in the notion of growth. So this notion of growth is um, also a notion of progress. How do we, how does Buddhist teaching speak of growth, of progress, of 
the development of the unfolding. That's an interesting one. And it's very clear, it's, it becomes very obvious that we have differing, some very differing models of how things grow and unfold. So, um, Buddhism uses images. Some images, the famous one is the lotus growing out of the mud. For those of you who are uh, familiar with lotuses, bear with me for a moment. Those of you who are not, the lotus grows preferably in water that is still, in water that is murky, uh, and in uh, water that is very saturated with decaying parts. So, And it grows in the sludge, then it grows through the water, and it goes above the water, not like the normal lily, which, blow, which blossoms on top of the water here, as, as here, but actually grows beyond the water level, and then opens up, and the flower actually stays dry. It's not floating, it's actually beyond the water level. So the, the lotus, in many ways, has, has become the quintessential image of growing from the dirt into the sunlight and remaining unstained, remaining absolutely pure, despite coming from the most sludgy and murky and um, ground. Yeah. And, you know, there's a power to this. You know. When we say things like peraspera adastra, then we mean something similar. Yeah, uh, We come from the dust and we reach for the stars. You know, that's our slightly grandiose version of this. But the lotus as an image coming from very humble backgrounds, from things that you don't want to touch, or from things that you can't even see clearly, and yet it nourishes itself and stays pure all the while it grows through dirty water, and then it opens up and is pristine and beautiful, is an image that has lodged itself into the, the human mind for a long time. So that is an, an image of a growth that is gradual, isn't it? Um, we are told that some lotuses do not actually arrive at the surface. Yeah? They stop growing. They never open. So there is an acknowledgement that not all things grow equally and not all things grow at the same speed. Uh, we have other images. We have the image of an eightfold path, which... at least in some parts, presupposes that before we can deepen into appropriate action and into appropriate uh, livelihood and into uh, effective emancipatory, emancipatory effort, we need to have some understanding prior to this. So there is a, a notion of gradualness, of sequ sequence in there. We have other images that um, speak of a raft to be taken from one shore to the next shore. Yeah. These are all famous images from the suttas, as you will recognize. So we have a message that the path is a, a gradual one. Three days ago I spoke to the staff people about a teaching that is called the gradual teaching, the kind of <coughs> teaching that the Buddha used to give to people before he taught the teaching that is peculiar to Buddhas, namely the four truths, the four truths' tasks. Before he was teaching this teaching, 
he made sure that people knew something about generosity, that they knew something about uh, habit energy, that they knew something about the danger of sense pleasure, that they knew something about the power of renunciation, um, that they knew something about cosmology. Yeah. Did you know you're on the fifth floor from 33 here? Yeah. Do you ever conceive of yourself in this way? In a pre-psychological language, the way you speak about differing states of mind and differing degrees of realization is a cosmological one. Yeah. That's one of the stumbling blocks when people who are quite interested in Buddhism open the books and then it's full of you know, deities and uh, tree devas and you know, beings that suddenly manifest at night and then they're not being understood and then they have to take on coarser bodies and they speak in stanzas. And so it can be a bit challenging if you come from a sort of scientist realism and have Buddhism down as the religion of reason and then you have to wade through deities and cosmologies and fairy tales and all kinds of stuff. It can be a bit challenging. But in a time that did not use psychological language, uh, cosmological language was a way of referring to stratification of experience, was, re was a way of referring to refinement of, may say, mental life. And all that needs a little bit of translation. So Buddhist teachings have found different ways to frame progress, to frame growth. So one famous model I've already started talking to you about is, is the model of the gradual approach. That gradual approach has the images, uh, as I said, of the lotus, of um, the path of the middle. We create conditions and we, we receive better re conditions as a result. We, create, we lay the ground and on the ground, once cultivated, then something grows. I do my effort now, I plant now and I reap later. Very clear, gradual, sequential, uh, progressive approach. Uh, there are good reasons to assume that model. Uh, the model assumes as a problem that we have bad habits. Uh, let me try to do that a little clearer. Um, that problem or that approach speaks very clearly that we need to organize where we start, we need to gain an understanding what is obstructive and we need to identify virtues and then we need to cultivate in a systematic and methodical way. Or largely in the way Christina said a few days ago, uh, cultivating intention despite of impulse. Yeah? So we keep an intention up and we have decided on something we need to do and then we keep doing this even though we have contrary impulses. That would be a classic example of such a gradual approach. Steadying our intention in the face of um, impulses to the contrary will leave us with a sense of empowerment because we can do difficult things. It will weaken uh, obstructive patterns. It will strengthen salubrious patterns. Uh, so that's very good very solid, very time-honored um, patterns and r results we gain from that. We all know we learn 
bit by bit. The world we engage in is a sequential world. And in that sequential world, there are causes, there are conditions, and the central metaphor in that world is time. Yeah? Practice is that we gradually build up, gradually disendarken. It's not about sudden enlightenment, it's about gradual disendarkenment. Okay? <laughs> the perspective is squarely a perspective of the conventional world. We start humble, like the lotus in the mud, like, uh, like the visionary in, in the dust. We start down below and we look up and we see we climb the ladder rung by rung. That's an interesting image. Um, waking up is progressive, it's linear, it's causal, it's, it, it, it marches from causes to consequences and results. Um, the, what goes with this is a perspective on awakening or maybe on the awakened one, the Tathagata. That's an interesting word. Uh, tathagata can be resolved as a compound in two ways. One is Tathagata, which means uh, one who is thus gone, yeah, completely transcended, completely other, has become completely different from how it is here. Or you can resolve that compound as tata agata, that the one who has completely come, who has completely arrived here, who is completely imminent. Yeah? The Italians have a wonderful world for that. It's called benvenuto, yeah? the one who is welcome. Yeah? So in the first way, the gradual path, the path that takes the progressive sequential approach, the Tathagata, the awakened one, is one who has completely gone. He has become completely transcendent. He has moved on. He is no longer somebody whom we can measure in the terms of our experience here. Like the fire gone out and cannot be seen anymore, cannot be felt anymore with the senses of eye and touch, in the same way the Tathagata, the awakened one, has become unspeakable, has become ineffable. That's an interesting image. Um, this realization of becoming free, becoming awakened, is uh, slow progress, very slow progress. As you know, Buddhists are very patient people, and they take a very long view. Yeah? Not the type of long view of spaciousness, but actually the long view of uh, how long this project is going to take. As you know, Buddhists are not disheartened that the fact, by the fact that things take long. Yeah? Just because it's not easy and the end is not in sight does not mean you're not on the right path. Yeah? Buddhists are quite adamant. You can be on the right path and it can be difficult and you're doing absolutely the right thing. Yeah? Sometimes short-term meditators are under the belief that if it doesn't feel good, they're doing something wrong. Yeah? The faint-hearted uh, often look for instant gratification. And I hope we have come across and made this very clear. While there is no uh, doubt that gratification is beckoning, it is not clear when it is beckoning. Yeah? <laughs> so, sometimes you have to see a lot of knee pain before it starts to open up. Yeah. One of the aspects of this gradual path is something called transcendence. It's something, it's a path um, 
And that's quite difficult to understand how something can be conditioned and how you can come from the conditioned to the unconditioned. You know? there, is a, there is some great gaps in there. You know? I remember Ken Wilber finding fault with some evolutionary theory and said, you know, if you, this, this long-term idea of having, uh, you know, generations and generations when you decide to go on land from being a fish and before you start to grow legs and before you start to grow wings, you have a, a lot of time. And he said, I don't believe this theory because if you don't actually grow your legs quick, you get eaten in the process. And that's the end of the evolution of this particular bit. Yeah. It'd be an interesting question how you can come from conditions that are mundane and how you arrive at transcendence. There is some, there are some serious questions there. How uh, we can grow out of a conditioned reality, out of conditioned mind states, suddenly to become unconditioned, awakened beings. There are some serious question marks in that theory. Remember, this is a metaphor. This is not the truth. Or as John would say, trust me, I'm telling you stories. Yeah. yeah. All of these metaphors are ways of helping us trying to understand a process. Sometimes we get lost and we take the metaphor actually for the process itself. But the metaphor is here to help us illustrate a process. And sometimes metaphors do a good job at that and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do a brilliant job at part of the process, but at other parts of the process they fall miserably down. Yeah. So, the basic idea of the gradual path is th the problem is bad habit. We're full of bad habits, irrespective of whether you have a Buddhist spin on this, you know, bad kilesas, bad vasanas, um, bad uh, sankharas, um, bad mm, forms of papancha, bad karma, you know, that would be the Buddhist spin. Or whether you take a kind of neurophysiological spin on this, this is kind of bad neural wiring, uh, bad neural pathways, <laughs> unfortunate uh, crisis and conflict strategies, uh, really malfiring uh, neural networks with lots of collateral and lots of... Um, lateral friction and this kind of thing. Irrespective of whether you take this or that uh, type of angle, and they're actually not so different as far as I can make out, you uh, end up with recognizing that something needs to be undone. Yeah? The problem is something that is not working and you need to undo. You need to undo. Yeah? Um, and then after you have undone, you hopefully arrive at some kind of neutral ground and then you start to do good stuff yeah you stop doing the bad stuff and then you start doing the good stuff and from doing the good stuff you, you get better stuff and it gets easier and then the you know the fruits by the way start falling into your lap and then you feel encouraged and then you keep doing just more of this yeah it's an interesting model um <laughs> and but it's it takes really a lot of patience it uh, it speaks say of purification yeah if you're not sure what purification is, it means basically cleaning. Yeah. So, citta visuddhi, cleaning the heart, you know, polishing the heart, polishing bad habits uh, and, and freeing yourself. Um, gradually, gradually, gradually. So, we have, say, the development of samadhi entails clearly 
something like gradual steps. That is maybe one of the most typical examples that you need a methodical and sequential approach. If you want to have deep states of stillness, you need to keep identifying what stops you being still and what helps you being still. And you need to keep doing more and more of this. Yeah. For some people that goes faster, for other people that goes not so fast. But all people need to methodically and systematically work on a deepening of calm. Samadhi is the quintessential example for how the gradual path works. If you're not doing it, if you're not putting time in and energy, and if you're not willing to let go of the fascinating thoughts or of the uh, gratifying fantasies or of the uh, fuzzy, warm memories, then your mind will not become still. But it will keep seeking gratification in the fuzzy thoughts, in the pleasant memories, in, in the promising fantasies. Yeah. It's as simple as that. If you feel that you're not willing to give up the gratification of thinking something pleasant or fantasizing something pleasant or remembering something pleasant in favor of an apparently a lot less pleasant breathing sensation, <laughs> and by... By this, you come to the conclusion you prefer to think a little bit here since nobody sees it anyway and <laughs> since you've learned to put on an angelic face um, and, and it doesn't cost anything. When you have decided to do that, this may sound absolutely harmless. It is. In terms of ethics, it's perfectly harmless. You know, it's not abusive. You don't squander anything. Um, it's not immoral. Uh, but in terms of samadhi, it's absolutely harmful. You lose your chances to become still. By this little decision to just keep seeking the gratification rather than putting in the effort and finding a way to associate your mental focus on an experience that is less gratifying than the memory or the fantasy. If you keep doing this little decision in favor of the memory and the fantasy, you keep systematically stopping yourself from actually finding stillness, deep stillness. Another example is uh, the principle of dependent arising, although I hate to see this as an entirely sequential process. It's a in my books, it's a structural process. Some parts of dependent arising are clearly sequential. Yeah. Sensory functioning is there pri is prior to Vedana. It's prior to feeling tone. And Vedana, feeling tone, is prior to desire. And desire is prior to grasping. If you don't have this sequential pattern there, this dependent arising is not taking place. So, however... The question you arrive at with this gradual model is pretty much, you know, who am I and what do I need to do to get better? If you're a little despairing, you will ask things like, how long does it take? Or uh, when will there be the first break? Or can I fall back? Is there, a, is there a stage where things become irreversible? So you ask questions like this. Yeah? It, uh, you know, teachers who teach this model will tell you you need to practice. You need to be cumulative, you need to be precise, you need to be consistent, you need to uh, cultivate, you need to be willing to not have any fruition immediately. You, know? you need to be able to postpone gratification. 
not just Buddhists say that, also psychologists. You know, this generally rated as a sign of maturity if you're capable of postponing gratification. You know? So this is not just Buddhism. There are other traditions who use gradual models. But there are some problems with that gradual model. Um, a, um, one of the problems is, say, with purification. It's very neatly put by the Zen tradition, you know, forgot which master it exactly was, but says, you know, sees his, sees his, medit uh, sees his disciples meditate, you know. Then they come out and they say, what are you doing in there? They say, well, we're meditating so that we can get enlightened. He nods with his head. <clears throat> they go back to the hall. Next time they come out of the meditation hall, he's out there polishing a tile, yeah polishing a tile. They ask him, Master, Master, what are you doing? He says, I'm polished to make this tile a mirror. Yeah. It's very clear that he'll never get to this mirror. Yeah. Polishing a tile will never make this tile to be a mirror. Yeah. So he's clearly uh, refuting the notion that by just continually and cumulatively exercising, you can become a mirror. Yeah. You can't make a mirror out of a tile. So that's, an, I think, an interesting example that says, well, that gradual model has some shortcomings. Yeah. One of the shortcomings is with the gradual model is that you basically never finish. Yeah. It's incredibly slow, and the farther you get, the, the less and less is the progress. Yeah. You're ending in this kind of, um, forgot what it is called in English, in German, it's Zeno's paradoxes. You know the spear that is thrown has to cover the first half and then it has to cover the second half of the the first half of the second half and then the first half of the remaining second half and so forth and so forth yeah and the spear basically never arrives in the same way meditation practice can feel at the beginning you know you never make as much progress like on your first retreat i'm sorry to tell you yeah <laughs> yeah your, your, your leaps and bounds are really big on your first retreat, but um, after your 30th retreat, somehow the steps you seem to be taking are no longer at that, in that sort of leak. So one, one of the problems with this gradual path is you never seem to arrive. It seems to get increasingly more difficult and the steps you come forward are increasingly smaller. Another problem is you... Um, Sometimes your ambitions grow faster than your realization. So you keep actually getting the feeling, I'm getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah? Because your ambitions and your expectations of yourself are growing faster than your actual realization. You also end up in a sort of endless self-optimization loop. You, know? you keep running around with the feeling of never being good enough. You know? I've been meditating for 35 years. The Buddha was there in six years. You know, what, are you, what am I doing? You know, yeah. How come? You know, it's, it's not working. Yeah. So, or after all these years, I shouldn't feel that way. You know, this is really un-Buddhist. Yeah. I sh really shouldn't be angry or really shouldn't be greedy anymore. Or obviously, I'm doing something wrong. So you end up in all kinds of funny places with uh, this gradual model um, is very is limited in its application for uh, growth and progress. So there are other models. Another model that is uh, about sudden understanding 
And um, I'll tell you later that they have had some historical uh, encounters. The Sutton model goes like this. The image there, or the, um, the, the basic message is not that my, my happiness is growing gradually. If I keep practicing now, then I will har harvest in the future. In the Sutton model, the image is my happiness can only take place now. Now, that is a very convincing line, because you can't be happy yesterday and you can't be happy tomorrow. You can only be happy now. If you're not willing, if you're not prepared, if you're not capable of being happy now, you will never really be happy. Yeah. That is quite convincing. The Southern model says, the problem is not bad habit. The problem is lack of understanding. You have your eyes closed. So there's a very different framing of what the major issue is. In the gradual path, the major issue is the momentum of darkness, the momentum of not seeing, the momentum of uh, confusion and the habits that come out of this. The problem is framed differently in the Southern model, and it's also the Southern model has beautiful metaphors. Yeah. It says... Uh, one of these metaphors is, um, if you switch on the light, that light is here completely and fully in one moment. The darkness is not gradually receding when you switch on the light. You don't need to chase the corners of darkness uh, out of the room when you switch on the light. You know, It's light in one go. It's bang, it's here. When you stand in front of the mirror, the image that the mirror throws back is not gradually assembling in a process of two minutes. Yeah? However fast you jump in front of that mirror or jump away, the mirror is going to do that in one piece, suddenly, immediately. It's not gradual. So the, the gradualist take is quite interesting. It says, sometimes you understand things and it is sudden. It is absolutely immediate. There's a famous idiom going through the Indian tradition. I believe the Samkhyas are the ones that I have found it earliest, but maybe it's even earlier, and it's called the Rajusarpa, the, the, the snake, the rope snake. Yeah. So, and the one application, there are many applications of this uh, rope snake, is when you see a rope in the half, you know, in the, in the half dark and you're afraid of snakes, then you will probably misconstrue that rope to be a snake. In fact, the psychological take is the more afraid you are of snakes, the more likely it is that you will misconstrue that rope to be a snake. But that's not my point for tonight. My point for tonight is once you have enough light and you see that this is not a snake but a rope, your fear will be immediately gone. It will not gradually wane. You don't need a lot of logical convincing of this fact yeah your understanding your the the clarity with which you now perceive this rope to be a rope rather than a snake is immediate it's not sequential it's sudden it's sharp you're sighing a relief you will give off a nervous giggle you will laugh and you will feel good yeah or maybe slightly foolish yeah so 
There are many images and many analogies that speak of processes that are indeed sudden, where awakening or at least understanding is sudden, where development is sudden, where processes take place sudden. The, the truth or the task to, to get at awakening is not gradual disabusing yourself of bad habits and cultivation of good habits as we had in the in the gradual path the task here is just to open your eyes just to open your eyes and see clearly to shed ignorance immediately by directly seeing what takes place that sounds attractive isn't it, it sounds a lot less strenuous than long the long haul climbing the rungs of the ladder um, it gets even better. The sudden pass, the sudden pass also makes that awakening is immediate, realization is immediate. It can happen any time. You know, you don't have to trudge eons through samsara to gradually wean yourself off bad habits and hopefully uh, cultivate a few good ones in the process. You can just wake up and realize a, a freedom that has always been there. You can understand what you have already understood, but you have not seen because your eyes were closed. So all you need is to find the magic word, the magic teacher, the magic technique, the magic moment to open your eyes and arrive at the wisdom that was always in front of your nose. Yeah. That's very attractive, isn't it? The central metaphor here is no longer time and sequence. The central metaphor here is space. It's sudden. It is here already. It is happening while other things are happening. Yeah. It's not sequential, one after the other, but it's bang, it's here. It's truly spacious. You know, the grass has always been growing. I have only ever been looking on the wrong side, but it has always been there. If I look at the right side, it's growing, and I'm happy. Yeah, I have access to it. Um, Correspondingly, you have the perspective on the Buddha. Here is the Tata Agata. He is completely calm. This is not about transcendence, about becoming other. It's about truly arriving here. Yeah. The Buddha is already here. Awakening is already here. It needs a little encouragement, and I need to open my eyes, and then it works. Yeah. I don't need to th embark on long sequences of... Uh, gradual training, all I need to do is to arrive at a realized perspective. And I shed the sleep of ignorance. If the gradual path demands from me a sort of sober sifting through conditions and uh, learning how to transform these conditions into better conditions, then my task, my practice here is a radical acceptance of that which is here. I just need to completely and radically, without any hesitation, accept the suchness of things and then I can move on. I can understand. There is no nirvana, there is no samsara, realization has happened already, I've only just forgot it and I need to remember. I need to open my eyes and I'm in the midst of it. That's quite nice, isn't it? Buddhist teachings have used both of these models. Um, sometime in the 7th century, there's a Chinese gentleman called Chen Hui who started to criticize the Indian gradual teachers. 
and um, he had quite some following and by the end of that century some of his uh, successors made it to Tibet so we are told and a famous debate took place there between the proponents of the gradual approach coming from India and the proponents of the sudden they were called subitists isn't it? it's a nice word yeah. gradualists and subitists some of you may speak Italian subito yeah immediately suddenly makes sense so the gradualist and the subitists hashed it out in Lhasa under the auspices of a king there who couldn't make up his mind uh, if I believe he had he had two wives a Nepali uh, wife and an Indian wife and they brought so the legend goes each their respective forms of Buddhism and the king uh, you can understand his marital situation needed to sort this one out so both of these traditions invited their most learned exponents and they debated it out in uh, Lhasa. Uh, the chronicles tell us that the gradualists won. Uh, famous two guys, one of them is, uh, it started off with um, Santarakshita and finally the younger one, Kamala Shila, uh, did then succeed in uh, out-debating apparently the Chinese debaters. And we are told by the winning faction that they were basically sent back, uh, which we know has never happened. They were never sent back. Uh, they went just elsewhere in Tibet and uh, have uh, continued teaching what they taught, um, which some Tibetan traditions will probably highly deny, but I believe this is what take place. They went a little further west and had some great influence in other forms of Tibetan practice. So the, the gradualists and the subitists were obviously convincing enough for a number of people for quite a number of years. And it may be interesting to see which model we incline to in our, in our uh, culture, in our day, maybe in our personality, uh, in our temperaments. We are likely to settle for one of these models as more realistic than of the other. Now it's good to remember these are models or metaphors. They are not actually the process. I believe we could do both of these models. I believe we, we need both. It doesn't make sense to just look at growth in terms of one of these models. It doesn't make sense to look at the child and insist on gradualist approaches and say, this child is just not, it's not a perfect, it, it's just an unfinished grown-up. Yeah? doesn't make sense to look at this. Yeah? You say, okay, the purpose of a child is not just the purpose of growing up. Yeah? A child is not just a lousy taxpayer and a, and, <laughs> and a bad reverse parker and an unfinished adult. You know? There is some power and some magic and some absolute beauty in a child at any stage of its development. Yeah. And I think the Subitists have something to say there that sometimes we rate our experience very, very badly in view of an inflationary ambition or in view of something we cannot forgive us to not have realized already. Yeah. I meet quite a bit of this in meditators. 
As soon as they have heard of letting go, they feel they, just because they know the word, they should be capable of doing this at the drop of a hat any time, and they shouldn't be attached to anything anymore. And you realize you can uh, use these teachings and really make it hard for yourself. You can really be unkind to the path you have already covered, to the intrinsic beauty and happiness that is possible right now to the things that you have deeply understood right now because you think uh, that there is a lot more missing so i guess we need to ponder there is a danger to both of these models i said the danger of the first model the gradual model i've already at least alluded to there is obviously a danger to the second model as well yeah the i believe the danger of the second model is that we can be a little too blue-eyed and say well everything is precisely as good as it can possibly be yeah so why should i change anything yeah. i don't really need to practice hard i don't really need to lay foundations i don't really need to give up bad habits um, i just snap my fingers and i'm already enlightened it's already happening you know i just haven't quite noticed it but I don't really need to work hard, I just need to keep trying to open my eyes a little wider and then it's good. Yeah? I don't really need to make any effort. Yeah. So sometimes you find teachings that um, vilify effort because apparently all effort is uh, coming from an ego position. Um, I have my doubts about this. I believe that indeed there is much misguided effort. Um, and there can be quite painful results from misguided efforts. It can be just, you know, at best it can be just really tiring. <laughs> yeah. At worst, you can shoot over the target. Um, you can be a little compulsive with it. But no effort. Just be natural, you know, relax back into your primordial awakening. Attractive as it may sound, it sounds also a little bit easy, isn't it? I, it's easy to kind of transfigure my current state of understanding into perfection. It's very comfortable. It means I don't have to do anything. It means I don't have to aspire. It means I can't be frustrated. It means I can't fail. That's very attractive, isn't it? So um, I guess one of the dangers with the Southern model is that we that we don't really develop tools, that we don't really make the effort to acknowledge soberly what actually we need to overcome. That we are tempted to transfigure things we can quite easily change and we have quite uh, enough power and skill to actually alter or outgrow that we keep hanging on in there simply because we say, well, you know, if, we, if it's real realization, I don't really need to work for it. It just kind of falls off of me. It has to be organic. As long as I have to sweat for it, it doesn't count. Yeah? Uh, it can be somewhat unrealistic when it comes to necessity. Sometimes just being happy with things as they are can also be a lack of acknowledgement what is actually needed, a lack of acknowledgement what is actually possible, and it can be quite dangerous. Yeah? 
can be I can actually cement myself in patterns that I could quite easily outgrow, let go of, purify, or simply cultivate to a greater degree of fruition. So I would like you to remember uh, or to just ponder which model you're operating by. Yeah? And whatever model you find, um, obviously historically there have been, early Buddhism has been a little more in favor of the gradualist path and say Zen or Dzogchen or some forms of Yogacara Buddhism have been a little more in favor of the, the sudden model. Uh, you probably find that these models are both useful and that they particularly useful to counteract each other. When you're doing a little too much of one, it may be worth looking a little bit at the other. Yeah. Acknowledging the goodness of what's happening. Yeah. You see that sometimes when, when we talk today. Christina and I responded to a question very different. You know. I responded to in, inquiring into the problem, you know, negotiating proximity, working with dim dimensions of intentionality. It was already sort of pathocentric and uh, problem-focused. And then Christina came in and said, uh, well, actually, it's also good to acknowledge what's already there. <laughs> you know, what's already good. <laughs> can you, can you <laughs> uh, deepen into this or just appreciate more, you know, what's already there? Yeah? Those would be some very practical applications of these two models. I believe both of value. So ponder to what you incline in your own notion of practice, in your own notion of progress. And when it starts to get a little too serious or a little too comfortable, uh, maybe it's time to change models. Yeah? So enough of me for tonight. Thank you for your attention. We have a walking period until quarter to nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.